Thank you, Jeff. If you have your Bibles and would like to follow along, or you can follow along in the bulletin in Ephesians chapter 2. We've been in the book of Ephesians, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 10 this morning. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the film uh, Saving Private Ryan, and there's a vivid scene uh, towards the end when Captain John Miller is played by Tom Hanks. He's dying from these gunshot wounds. He's risked his life, and now he's laying down his life along with several of the others on his team whose mission was to save Private Ryan, to bring him back to his family since his other brothers had already been killed in World War II. And as Captain John Miller, Tom Hanks, is dying, he grabs hold of the shirt of Private Ryan, who's played by Matt Damon. And you remember probably what he said. He says, James, earn this earn it. And at the end of the movie, we come back to the beginning of the movie where the man, uh, Private Ryan, is now an elderly man. He comes to the graveside of the one who gave his life for him. And his whole family's gathered there and they're next to this cross tombstone and he says, every day I think of those words you said to me on the bridge and I've tried to live my life as best as I could. And I hope that it was enough. And I hope that at least in your eyes, I have earned what all you have done for me. And he slowly gets up, looks at his wife and says, tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. As he looks for vindication and to be justified by his wife. And she looks at him and says, you are. And those words, uh, you know, obviously, great cinematography, bad theology. And yet I think that's how we often live the Christian life. If I had to say, give me one word, trying or resting this morning, which category would you put yourself in? That Jesus the captain died for me and I'm the private and now I need to earn it because his grace really is not enough. We look around for, for vindication and validation from the opinions of others wanting them to know, tell me that I'm living a good life. Tell me, aren't I special? What do you think? And God has something to say to us this morning. He speaks through his word. And he says in Ephesians chapter 2 that you were dead in trespasses and sins. And once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with, with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this not your own doing, it's the gift of God not the result of works, so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You could say this is the best of times, it was the worst of times. In 10 verses, we go from the baddest of news to the best of news, the bad works and the good works. We kind of have a book one and a book two. And so let's consider and start with the, the bad news. So the first three verses tell us our problem, humanity's problem, everybody's problem. And then verses four to seven go into the good news. And then verses eight to 10 are a clarification because we're still gonna try and earn it ourselves. And he has to clarify. So let's look at the problem, humanity's problem, the bad news. I wanna start by asking, do you accept the Bible's verdict about you? Are there things in the Bible that you say, well, I don't like that, and so we discard it? The Bible says, it begins in chapter two here, and it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Bruce Wiley reminded me of a scene this week. Maybe the youth have heard this many times. I don't know if this is a Bruce Wiley favorite or not. But in The Princess Bride, there's a scene where Inigo Montoya has this interaction with Miracle Max. I have a few movie quotes this morning. So if you like cinematography, this, this sermon will be for you. If you don't like movies, well, come back next week. <laughs> You'll still love God's word, so pay attention. Amen. So in the, this scene, though, Inigo Montoya says, he's dead, he can't talk. And Miracle Max says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Look who knows so much. It just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a difference between mostly dead and all dead. Mostly dead is slightly alive. With all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing you can do. And Inigo Montoya says, what's that? And he says, go through his clothes and look for loose change. So I think there's, as we talked about last week with this $6 million man and how he's barely alive and we can rebuild him, that we have a hard time accepting this verdict and we want to say, but we're mostly dead, but we're slightly alive. And alive, you see, means that I can work to earn favor with God. We can try to earn it. And earning, what I want you to see, that's, that is the wrong currency with God. We can't earn anything with God. So we have to accept what the Bible says about us. You may recall, I'm sure many of you live this, when the housing market crashed a little over 10 years ago, there was this interesting problem that, you know, we kind of, as you look back and see what happened, and it was documentaries that were done, and I'm sure many of you read a lot more articles than me on it, but a big part of the problem was that the rating companies, and they were rating the bonds, they were in cahoots with the investors. And they're both making money, and they're both happy, and the Moody's and the S&P and Fitch, they're giving triple bond ratings, triple A ratings, to all kinds of mortgage companies that were in essence just bloated with junk bonds. And this is kind of like peer review. There, nobody's grading on, a, on, you know, the curve is there's nobody busting the curve. So, hey, let's, you know, let's make everybody happy here. And, in, and if you were to kind of blend this over to psychology, you know, the popular book that was back in the, in the growth spurt day of self-esteem, there was a book titled, I'm Okay, You're Okay. 
how nice, we're all good. You see, the problem with the housing market collapse was there was a lack of check and balances. There was incredibly risky loans, arms that were completely unsustainable, and it was all driven by pride and greed and the lust of man, and we all somehow thought we were just too big to fail. Nobody wanted a real mirror. Nobody wanted to look at the real light. So the rating companies played along because of their own fear of man and their own greed and that they would no longer be consulted, they would no longer be looked to, they would lose respect, they would lose influence, and they, so they said, I'm okay, you're okay. And we do the cha-cha-cha and the foxtrot and it's fun to dance together. Then they did just fine until the music stopped and the people on Main Street started singing bye-bye Miss American Pie as it all came crashing down. My point in this is to try to just come around the back door to see how wrong this was. The market was blind to the truth. They didn't want to hear it because they were having too much fun. Can you see where I'm going with this? See, here's the crazy thing about sin. Sin in its very essence is deceiving. It's blinding. I received an email yesterday from the abortion clinic owner in Germantown. And basically I'm trying to continue conversation and basically tell them there's some people that are apprehensive because basically they don't trust you. And so he writes back to me and he wants to, me to know and he wants me to tell everybody, I live in a community, I have a family, I run a small business, I have friends, I like football. I have a great deal of respect for others and their freedom to make their own choices. It might make your job a little easier if you can convey to your supporters, I don't hate anyone. We disagree on one subject. We disagree on the topic of abortion and it's probably where your emotional differences, where our emotional differences end. I respect others in their pursuit of happiness even if I disagree with them. Now I want you to think about that. This is frightening. So here we have an abortion clinic owner who owns a business that has made tens of thousands of dollars as a slaughterhouse for human babies. And he's trying to convince me that he doesn't hate anybody because he's, he, he's blind. He's blind to the spiritual reality. He thinks he can determine for himself what is happiness and what is hate and what is love. Just like we naturally, for the grace of God, there go I, because we always want to determine for ourselves what is hatred and what is love. And what happens when we do that is then we begin to determine for ourselves when life begins and whether or not this is murder or whether or not this is love. And he really thinks he's loving women because we're coming from completely different worldviews. A worldview that begins with what God has to say what God brings to bear, and what God says about you and I. And God says about us this morning, you're dead and your trespasses and sins. That's our natural self. We're disobedient. We follow the course of the world and the prince of the power of the air who blinds the minds of unbelievers, completely blinded to spiritual realities. And not only are we blind, dead, disobedient, but we're doomed. We were, by nature, children of wrath. Wrath means deserving punishment. 
okay? And so, um, when you hear that, the flesh wants to be like Herod. When Herod heard the news that John, Bapt- John the Baptist was bringing to him, hey, you're with, an- you're with another man's wife. This is adultery. <laughs> Herod's like, man, put that guy in prison. Shut him up. Get him out. His response of being confronted by his sin was to get rid of the person. And what's scary when you watch movies about the mafia or you read about them, when they don't get what they want, the, the obstacle is removed and the person is never heard from or seen again. <laughs> and in psychology, we, you know, as you're, you know, you study this, you, you know, as a counselor, they basically, they kind of either deal with two areas. We either got to change belief or we got to change behavior, which is harder to change, behavior or belief. Well, behavior is hard to change, and so somebody comes to you and they're, and they're feeling just like a loser, you know, they're feeling terrible, their self-esteem's in the pit, and, you know, and, but come to find out they're living in adultery. And so you can either tell them, look, you need to repent and get out of this, or you tell them, actually, you need to change your view, change your belief. It's okay. I'm okay. You're okay. Change your belief, and you'll be okay in your behavior. You see, and so what happens is when when someone grows up in the church, and suddenly they don't believe anymore, suddenly nothing's making sense. They've got real questions about the faith, and and they're legitimate. I'm not saying this is always the case, but often what is difficult here is I want to know, why don't you want to know the truth anymore? What has all of a sudden changed in your life that you no longer want to have a mirror being held up to you because it's painful? Are you sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend? And is that why? And often there's a big sin issue that's now causing them to question everything about God because they feel bad about themselves. You see, our flight, our flight or fight response is to attack the source. It's to discredit the source of the attack. It's to give ad hominem arguments. Mr. Trump is really good at that. You know, he did that all through the whole thing. Attack the person, attack the person. Well, that's what our flesh does. We attack the person. We attack God. And so when you get really mad at someone, you say, he's dead to me. He's dead to me. And what God is saying this morning is that's how we're treating him. He's saying you're dead in trespasses and sins because your sinful response has been to get God the source out of your life. And that's why we killed Jesus. It's why the crowd cried all the more and all the louder, crucify him, crucify him, because he was holding up a mirror to their hearts and he said out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a man. And for that, we got to kill him because he's holding up a mirror and it's too painful. And the cha-cha-cha has to end now. And so when we start to be awakened spiritually, we start to start to get a sense that, you know what? This is true about me. I'm a sinner. I've followed a pattern of the world. I pursue these things. 
And even the best of things that I do, I want to get praise for it. I want to be noticed. I want to set little traps, little morsels of praise so people will bite the trap and say, isn't he great? And so when we start to get awakened spiritually, there's a sense that we want to fly to our duties and how prodigals quickly become elder brothers. And we want to earn it. And we will go right back to saving Private Ryan. And we want our good works to outweigh our bad works. And I'm going to try harder now. And I know I've been bad, but I'm going, to be, I'm going to work at it now. I'm going to be good enough. And the Bible has to say here again and again, by grace you've been saved. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's charis and it's charisma. Those are the two Greek words. Charis for, for grace and charisma for gift. And that's what the gospel is. It's a gift when somebody gives you an incredible gift on Christmas morning, if you had this incredible gift, if you've seen Rico Tice's thing on Christianity Explorer and he's got this little video of a kid, you know, getting a bicycle and he's a little kid and, and he's just blown away that his parents are getting a bicycle and the parents just want to know, does the child love the gift? But in the, in the, in the vivid imagery that, imagery that he gives in Christianity Explorer, is the kid opens the, sees the bike and he turns to his parents and says, what do I owe you? And the parents look at each other like, what? They don't get it. He doesn't get it. Well, then we don't get it. You see, grace is just the opposite of earning or deserving. What's the context here? The context here is wrath. We were children of wrath. Children of wrath getting grace. We went from the best of times, worst of time, and you went from Children of wrath, the wages of sin is death, deserving eternal punishment for our sins because eternal punishment because we have sinned against an eternal and infinite and good God that our sins require an infinite and eternal punishment. God can't belittle his glory, belittle his justice, and so yet we think we can somehow pacify God with the good that we have done. And God holds up a mirror to us and shows us the truth. And he says, all of us have become like the one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And that's the word menstrual clause in Hebrew. It's what it is. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. So when, I, when the sermon title is from rags to riches, you can see where this is going. Okay? Rags. That's our best. Our best works. You see, the currency of trying to pacify God by goodness and being awakened spiritually and to, to fly to our goodness, our best deeds are corrupted. Our best prayers are corrupted with sin. Our, our, our prayers are tainted. The good things we do are tainted. And that's where the Puritans would say, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so even when we try to do good things, there's a lurking pride, praise of men, wanting to be noticed. And we want to do good to avoid God, to avoid the cross, to avoid having to come to God with nothing. And yet when, we're, when we realize that God is awakening us spiritually, then we say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We repent of our goodness, not just our badness, but we're repenting of all the good things that we've done, that we've tried to say, I've tried to use those things to make myself look better. 
There's a great hymn, old hymn by Isaac Watts entitled, I Boast No More. The lyrics go like this. Here's one who's been awakened by grace. No more, my God. I boast no more of all the duties I've done. I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. Not for the loss I bear his name. What was my gain I count but my loss. My former pride I call my shame and nail my glory to his cross. The best obedience of my hands dares not appear before the throne, but faith can answer thy demands by pleading what the Lord has done. What are you pleading this morning? What the Lord has done or what you have done? One of the guys I initially talked to about, you know, trying to shut down this abortion clinic, and he was telling me how they had shut down the clinic in Manassas, and he was telling me, you know, man, this is so important because, you know, this is something that, you know, someday when we die, that we we can say, man, Lord, remember that. And I had to say, Brian, we repent of that. He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So that's what this passage is getting at. Is that when, now, if you look at the passage again, I want you to just see, particularly you people that love literature and like reading and understand all the the technicalities of, of the verbiage here much better than I. Paul is writing very suspensefully. This sentence just keeps going on and on and the tension just keeps building. You're dead in trespasses. You once walked. You're following this. You're following that. You're, and you're, you're now you're children of wrath. And, and, then, and then it starts to tell you, but God. But God What? He's rich in mercy with the great love he loved us. And then he repeats it, goes back to the attention again. And even when we were dead, and then finally, finally, we're getting to everything that this passage is talking to. And we get to the main point. He made us alive. We were dead. He made us alive. Just as Jesus was dead and he made him alive. Jesus was raised up to heaven. We too have now been seated in heavenly places. And so there's this, what we call this union with Christ, being connected to him. You can never separate the gospel from its benefits. I've been reading this book by Sinclair Ferguson on this. It's, it's on the marrow controversy, but his point is that it was very convicting to read, is that do we want all the benefits without Christ? And it's very subtle, but he's saying, look at the books on your shelf. And if you're reading more about a good marriage and how to put sin to death and how to, how to be a good preacher, you know, all this stuff, but are we reading about Jesus? The gospel is Jesus. See, our spirit, this is what Everett Harris says. He's in, this is a commentary. He says, our spiritual history began at the cross. We were there in the sense that in God's sight, we were joined to him, Jesus, who actually suffered on it. The time element should not disturb us because if we sinned in Adam, it is equally possible to have died to sin with Christ. Our spiritual history began there at the cross and we're connected to him. And because we're connected to him, then we can say, as John Stott says in his helpful book, Men Made Made New, 
He says, I find it helpful to think in these terms. Our biography is written in two volumes. Volume one is the story of the old man, the old self, of me before my conversion. That's verses one to three. That's volume one of the story, and it's all bad news. But volume two is the story of the new man, and that's verses four to 10. Of course, he's, he's telling you this in Romans six, but volume two is the story of the new man, the new self of me. I was made a new creation in Christ. He says, volume one of my biography ended with the judicial death of the old self. I was a sinner, I deserved to die, I did die. I deserve my deserts and my substitute, which, what, which whom I've become one. But volume two of my biography opened with my resurrection. My old life having finished, a new life to God has be, begun. And so we have to keep saying to ourselves, volume one has closed. And you're now living for volume two. And it's inconceivable that you should reopen volume one. It's not impossible. But if we're going to continue with the movie theme, it's inconceivable. <laughs> Tim Keller tells a story from the life of Augustine. And Augustine, you know, as you know, as many of you remember his story, he was, his vice was, was um, a lust premarital sex, he was living uh, outside of wedlock, he didn't become converted till he was 32 years old and he greatly struggled with sin and he would pray, Lord, deliver me, but, but not yet. And he still liked the pleasures of his sin and he was struggling with it greatly. And he had this, you know, he went through several different relationships after he broke up with the first one. And so one day uh, he sees one of his mistresses and now he's volume one has closed and volume two has begun and when she saw him on the street she said to him Augustine it is I and he turned around and smiled and he said yes I know but it is not I you see volume one had closed and volume two had begun now, I'm not going to spoil the movie La La Land for those of you that haven't seen it. But I, I really liked the movie. And it was one scene that, that really, I really liked in the movie, okay? And in this scene, uh, you got Ryan Gosling, you got Emma Stone. And Ryan Gosling loves jazz music. He's a jazz musician. He's living for jazz music. And when, one of their initial, finally, they have a decent conversation she just stops him and says, I got to tell you, I don't like jazz music. And he's just floored. Like, what do you mean? Like, you don't know jazz music. And so he introduces her to jazz music, takes her to a place and they hear jazz music. And, and she's trying to explain, but from my perspective, I mean, it's like elevator music. You know, you just talk over it. It's background, it's noise, you know, and you, you just talk over it. And it's, it's like Kenny G, you know, and... and, and He's very frustrated and he's talking about how it shouldn't be like that. And, and so they set up a first date and she forgot that she had another date with her boyfriend. And he shows up and they, she realizes she's gonna miss her date. And so she's at the restaurant and they're just talking away, noise, noise, noise. And for the first time, she hears the elevator music and she can't even really hear them anymore. She's hearing the music 
of a greater sound, and she realizes there's an awakening. She loves jazz music. And she looks at him, and she's like, I gotta go. She is so out of there, and she is booking it to get to somewhere else, because now she's hearing jazz music. Are you hearing the music of the gospel that you're willing to say that old book is closed? This is a sweeter music. To me, that's just a beautiful picture of repentance. It's hearing a better music that changes perspective and now you're out of there. And so, as she books it, I'm hoping that you're booking it to Jesus because what we see here is that Jesus takes our rags, okay, and he gives us riches. And book of Ephesians, you know, is, is Wearsby calls it, you know, he's got these be, be wise, you know, Colossians, be rich, you know. Ephesians has several references to being rich. And the one expounding of the prayer that I didn't go into, which he was praying for in chapter one, was he was praying that the believers would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you see that in Ephesians 1.18? Paul is praying for that. I never expounded that because I wanted to tie them all into chapter two because he's, he's illustrating them in chapter two. He illustrates all three of these, these points. And yet he says the riches of his glorious inheritance. And so think about that. We're his inheritance. We don't just get the inheritance, we're his inheritance. Why is that better? Well, last movie, Pride and Prejudice. So in Pride and Prejudice, you have this wonderful uh, movie and and it, it really dives into two characters in particular, Elizabeth and Darcy. Elizabeth is very intelligent. She's shrewd, she's wise, she's smart. She does not want to marry out of accommodation. And she's not gonna marry just for money or for an inheritance because she's a woman of great virtue and she's only gonna marry for love. And yet there's a scene in the movie where she's rejected Darcy and the first time she sees the inheritance and she sees this massive palace. I mean, the imagery is just <laughs> like, what have, I, what have I let go, right? But she didn't marry him for that. We don't marry God for the inheritance. We get the inheritance thrown in. And we can laugh at how poor Bill Gates are and how poor Warren Buffett are. They're so poor compared to us. They are just nothing. I pity them. They live for a moment. We live for eternity. We get everything. So here's what happens. Elizabeth begins to discover She's been wrong about Darcy. She's had a, she's thought he was hard. She, she's got harsh views on him, just like we have naturally hard views of God and think that he's not good. And then she begins to discover, wait a minute. She discovers she's really, truly, and incredibly just totally in love with him. And she's overcome because she realizes that he loves her. And he loves her not because of her wonderful pedigree and her wonderful background, but for who she is as a person. And so the inheritance, the accommodation, and all the money, they're secondary because what's blown her away is she gets him. You see, the gospel is we get Jesus. We get God, and everything else is just thrown in, but what blows us away is that he would say to us, 
We are his inheritance. Think about this. He delights in us. We are the apple of his eye. We're told in Psalm 17 and other places. And him being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. When we were dead in trespasses and sins, with great love he loved us and being rich in mercy. And now he loves us so much, it says in verse seven, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches, there it is again, riches of his grace and kindness toward us. He's saying, I've got a love on you for all eternity. Zephaniah 3.17 says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Does that sound like a, a God that you'd want to get to know? That you'd want to spend time with? That you would hear the music and say, I'm so out of here. And you would leave those other things behind, that they're nothing compared to this. And John Piper says on Ephesians, this verse, Ephesians says, and I'll close with this. He says, if the thought of unending life for trillions and trillions of years is oppressive to you because of the threat of boredom, remember this, though it is not fully comprehensible to us, an infinite God is infinitely inexhaustible in the treasures of power and wisdom and love and beauty, which we will spend an eternity discovering and enjoying and applying to daily life in the new earth. We'll never sit down like Alexander the Great and weep that there are no more worlds to conquer. Our joyous quest to attain the heights of God's wisdom and love will never be ended. And when after a million years we pull ourselves with unspeakable exhilaration over the massive peak of some glorious divine truth, we will be utterly astonished to find, not at the top, but merely in the foothills and before us, as far as the eye can see, mountains and valleys and forests and heights and light that could have never been imagined. There'll be no boredom in the age to come. Oh, to be there and not to be in hell. And so... We run to Jesus. And so we accept God's verdict about us. We accept that we can't fix the problem. We accept that he's fully fixed it for us. And we accept that grace is enough, that he's the one who's taken us from rags to glorious riches for eternity. We've only just begun. And I'll close with this. When John Valjean Les Mis, the famous scene where he gave the candlesticks. In the book, it doesn't, I haven't seen this in the movie, but in the book, after he gives him the candlesticks, it says John Valjean was trembling in every, every limb. He took the two candlesticks mechanically and, and with a bewildered air, now said the bishop, go in peace. By the way, when you return, my friend, it's not necessary to pass through the garden you can always enter and depart through the street door. It is never fashioned with anything but a latch, either by day or by night. You're welcome. That's what God does for us. That's grace. Let's pray. Father, we love this grace that has been so showered upon us. Inexhaustible we will never get to the bottom of the ocean of your grace. We thank you for blood that flowed freely, Lord Jesus, from your veins. 
that has made us white as snow. We thank you for a robe of righteousness, taking our rags and wearing them on a cross and imputing your very righteousness that we would have this robe. And so we would rebuke the enemy this morning. Thank you that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I pray that, Lord, where there is guilt and consciences this morning, that you'd wash afresh from dead works, that we would serve the living God, and that we would do the good works that you've created us to do, which is thanksgiving, a joy to serve you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.